from Selma, Alabama. Would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Wyndham? I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, he says, said when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening, and it's a rare thing these days. Listening, listening to the human voice, listening to one person talking to another person, listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen, God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion. <laughs> and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning and laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh, laugh at ourselves, laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says, but we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said, you laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving, loving. That God put us here to love each other to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with I love you. Thanks so much to Catherine Tucker Wyndham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at 92 years old and once again reminding us why stories are so important. I'm Amy Antonucci here to welcome you to our True Tales Live Zoom show on May 30th, 2023. Thank you all who are watching and listening and a special thanks to our live online audience. So good to have you, yay. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide people with a space to tell first person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity and help us to bridge differences and build understanding and respect. True Tales Live was started in November 2013 by John Lovering. John gathered the rest of us together over time to help, and he brought the show from radio to TV to Zoom. And this is John's last show with us. We plan to offer a number of ways to thank him, but let's start right now with just a very visible cheer to John to honor what he started and what so many of us have gotten so much out of. Yay, John, thank you. So we are so happy to exist and be here with you to hear more stories. Since we do believe that storytelling is an exchange between tellers and listeners, let me remind you of our suggestions for making the most of being on Zoom. First, if your video is on, you can have big physical reactions to connect with the rest of us, just like I had you do for John a minute ago. You can also use the chat box to express reactions and to put in questions, because usually we have a little time 
at the end of these for a bit of Q&A with the storytellers. So if your questions are in there, they might get picked. Our theme tonight is like a fish out of water. We will hear stories from Julia O'Connell, Steve Varnum, and myself, Amy Antonucci, followed by the Q&A with the tellers, and then a short interview of Steve by David Frayner. Pat Spaulding is our MC. Join me in welcoming her. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Um, first up, our storyteller is going to be Amy Antonucci, our True Tales Live announcer, whom you just heard. She has worked with the program since it began in 2014. When she's not telling stories and running storytelling workshops for True Tales Live, she is tending to her bees, poultry, goats, and gardens at her homestead in Barrington, New Hampshire, Living Land Permaculture Homestead. From 2008 to 2015, Amy helped care for her aging father, as well as getting her small farm up and running. Aging and taking care of aging parents is a journey that can constantly challenge and change how we are in the world, relationships, living situations, physical abilities, and more. Often, all involved feel out of place, out of sorts, like a fish out of water. In tonight's story, Amy explores one of those times of transition for her and her father. Here she is with, I have a cat. Come on up, Amy. Thank you, Pat. So I had been worrying about my parents all of my life. Since I was a child, my mother's multiple sclerosis, my father's anxiety, and their volatile, although ultimately enduring marriage, kept me up many nights. Maybe that's why, as they aged, a dark and morbid vision began to haunt me, although I was too embarrassed to admit it to anyone. But in it, my father helps my disabled mother prepare for and get into bed. He joins her. During the night, he has a heart attack and dies. My mother, unable to get up or reach a phone because of her advanced MS, just lies there with his body for hours, days, weeks, until she dies too. What would it finally take for someone to find them? Maybe the cat would find a way out alive? In the light of day, after reining in my own probably over-the-top worries, I tried to talk to them calmly and realistically about their plans and safeguards against frightening outcomes. I was in my 30s, living my own life, and I had purposely distanced myself from them and their demands but I was still their daughter and I expected to be called in if needed. They were not interested in discussing it with me. Amy, we're all right, said John. That's none of your business, Amy, said Irene. As if there was any chance I can believe that now and feel free of responsibility. But they were a team. They were a bickering, quarreling team, but Irene and John were in it together. And the rest of us were on the outside. 
Sometimes I felt painfully excluded by this. Other times, um, mercifully spared. But either way, I couldn't imagine them without each other. They were so dependent on each other. Their carefully constructed life would just fall apart, I thought, if one of them was removed from the partnership. I began to harbor another vision, an unspoken secret fantasy about a best case scenario of their death that involved the two of them dying simultaneously, maybe in a train accident. Dramatic for me, but maybe a kindness to them. In the end, my mother died first in a hospital with care and family and friends. This was a huge relief to me, but her death was also a terrible shock to all of us, really unreasonably so, given that she'd been sick for over 30 years with a really serious illness. But Irene had such a big personality. She was always in the center of everything. And she was my mother. It hit me hard. Then there was just a lot to do. Paperwork, funeral, burial arrangements, phone calls, thank you notes. I drove the hour and a half down from New Hampshire often to help during those weeks. We didn't have much time to think or worry. When that was done, when life started to get back to a new, if somewhat unreal normal, I started to notice that John was now alone, alone in the house, on his own to figure out housekeeping, meals, appointments. He had lost his partner, his wife of 40 years, the driving force, or as Irene would have said, the brains of the operation. After a lifetime of fretting about both of them, now all my worry focused on him. Dad, I'm concerned about you being in the house alone. I don't live alone, Amy. I have a cat. Was his answer to me, his friends, his doctors. Now, I am an animal lover. I agree that having an animal companion is meaningful and emotionally important. But could Minnie call 911 if he fell down the stairs? Could Minnie remind him to turn off the oven or take his medications or lock the door at night? Was I really supposed to be reassured by Minnie? Then again, my mother could not have done all of that. The reminders she sure delivered, often with colorful language, but her ability to get assistance if needed was not a sure thing. That's why I'd had those nightmares for all those years. Not all husbands can live long past their wives. I heard the stories and I read the research. Many men die within a year of being widowed. Given how dependent my parents were on each other and that he was actually eight years older than my mother, I didn't know if his chances of survival were that good. So as I got more involved in his life now, I wondered if it maybe wasn't gonna be a long-term commitment. I suspected that after one year, either we'd have settled him into his new Irene-less life or I'd be burying him too. It was another dark, depressing thought, but someone here had to face facts. And I needed to prepare myself if there was gonna be another loss. My father and I had talked every day on the phone since my mother went into the hospital, 
Sometimes it was a short conversation, but enough that I knew, okay, he's alive, no need to send someone over to check. It might've started out feeling like a burden to me, but I have to admit after long, it, it was a touchstone of my day, making contact, hearing his New York Boston accent, knowing I could dial back my fears. Maybe pushing for more change in his life at this point was a bad idea, but I started trying to have the conversation when I drove down. Dad, do you really think it's good for you to live alone? You're not alone, I have many. Okay, well still, thinking ahead, Dad, maybe you should tell me about your plans. Plans? Yeah, as you get older, Dad, what do you want to happen? You know, your plans for mom's care, what about yours? Amy, I'll tell you what you do. When they try to come and take me away to put me in a home, you come down here and you shoot me in the head. He nearly yelled that last line at me. Dad, come on, I'm just worried about your living alone. Don't worry about me, I have a cat. So I stumbled ahead, unsure where we were headed, just trying to stay sane and keep up. Along with the daily calls, I drove down to see him every few weeks, which was a lot compared to our previous holidays only visit schedule. While there, I started going with him to see his neighbors. Maybe they could help me keep an eye on him, spread the responsibility a bit so I could relax a little, like an emergency alert system or a network of spies. My parents knew their neighbors. Not everyone does anymore. In my rural area, it's kind of rare. But my father grew up in Brooklyn during the Depression. People sat on their stoops, exchanged news, helped each other out. Wandering the neighborhood, chatting with people felt entirely natural to him. I feel shy and nervous knocking at someone's door, so I was impressed. I started joining him on his rounds and handed out my number, telling folks to call me if there was anything they thought I should know. About six months into our post-Irene life, my father seemed to get busier and not be as easy for me to reach. I didn't know what this meant, and I poked and I prodded, and finally I got it out of him that he was spending time with a friend, a woman with MS, helping her out as she was still trying to live on her own. I'd met her through my parents before. She was lovely. I saw her as a sort of kinder, gentler version of my mother. I was intrigued, but couldn't quite get out of him the nature of their relationship. He would only tell me, Amy, you know, she could really use the help. And it's good for me to be, emo to be emotionally close to someone. Maybe he expected me to be angry, but I wasn't. I was relieved. I knew having someone to take care of was the most familiar way for him to be in this world. And it was his way of taking care of himself. When we reached the anniversary of Irene's death, my father was still alive and busy with his new life. I could hardly believe it. Why had I lost so much sleep fretting about him? He'd done it, found a way to go on without my mother. He had a new lady friend, stayed involved in the neighborhood, and yes, he had a cat. <laughs> oh man, if, uh, if this was a live show, I would have been coughing with laughter several times. 
I I really loved how the dark humor was so clear and real, but but funny because because it's so clear and real. I really recognize so much in that uh, story, Amy. It's um, and I enjoyed meeting your parents as a couple. I've heard wonderful stories about your father in particular, but it was nice to hear about his dependence on Irene and have a little more full picture of her. So thank you for that story. I'm sure we all enjoyed getting a little more information about the whole family. <laughs> and now we're coming up to Julia O'Connell from Kittery, Maine. She's an avid water enthusiast. Julia grew up on Cape Cod, racing her brothers swimming to boys in the middle of the bay, sailing her sunfish even when small craft advisories were forecast, and ca uh, calmer days she would kayak. Later, she became a swimming instructor who also rode varsity crew at UNH, where two of the women went on to compete in the Olympics and actually win bronze medals. No stranger to the water, this story is about Julia's continued diving into the enjoyment of all sorts of water sports. Its title is, appropriately, A Good Sport. So let's welcome Julia. Thank you. So it was one of those warm, sunny days, just beautiful. The kind of day you want to be outside, on the water, in a boat, paddling, sailing, rowing, and we were ready for that moment. My new partner, Mike and I, had loaded his canoe on top of his truck the day before in preparation for our racing debut around Round Island called the Round Island Regatta in Portsmouth. Now this would be our first venture working as a team. So I was pretty excited. And I even thought maybe we'll place first, second or third place. That would be terrific. Um, Charles Lassen had organized the race. He actually lived on Round Island, this tiny island in South Mill Pond. And um, he had a small home he had renovated. And then there was a dock going out where his launch he used to get back and forth to Portsmouth. And the funds that were raised went towards the heritage homes in Strawberry Bank. Um, there would be an after race lobster picnic at one of these beautiful homes. And the prizes sometimes included special prizes like um, most handsome boat or most improved um, or best costume. And I wondered what were they gonna do this year? Cause every year it was a little different. Um, also there was gonna be a special guest of honor, Governor Maggie Hassan, who I absolutely adored. She had done such good work for the state of New Hampshire. She had increased um, funding to higher education, and she had expanded the health care for everyone. So I was really looking forward to meeting her. So race day arrived. We had to be at the launch by 11 a.m. At 10 a.m., Mike said, well, you know, I don't know, Julia, my, my shoulder is really sore. I, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can paddle today. It's like, Mike, Mike, I'm depending on you. I'm counting on you being in the stern steering the boat. I just don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, geez, just can you reconsider, please? It's, it's a short race, beautiful day. He said, no, I, I'm sorry. I, I really can't. I'm really sorry. Okay, well, I hope your shoulder gets better soon. And 
maybe I can think of somebody that could join me. So I went through my mental Rolodex of possibilities. And then I thought our friend, Karen, she was often up for adventures at the last minute. So in my mind, I was like, last minute, Karen, I'm going to call her. And sure enough, she said, yes, I'm not busy. I'd love to. Okay, Karen, wear a swimsuit and we'll take care of the rest. We'll see you soon. Half an hour later, we met her at the launching site. And so Karen, um, do you think you could paddle in the stern and steer? And she said, uh, I don't know. Can you give me a lesson? I haven't paddled in about 10 years. Like, oh, okay. So when you get in the boat, stay low and stay in the middle and you can be in the bow and there's a life jacket on the seat there. So there were hundreds of people lining the shore and there was dozens and dozens of boats in the water. So we entered the water and then I heard the horn go off as the first group, the small sailboats went off the starting line. They had a tailwind, so they were easily going straight towards Round Island. And then dozens of um, paddle boards and kayakers were the next group and the horn went off and the crowd cheered and sent them on their way over the starting line. And then as I looked around, I saw, oh, there's my friend Jack. He's here in his antique wherry with his wife and daughter. And they're wearing costumes from colonial times. He had this tri-corner hat on and um, this signature Benjamin Franklin spectacles that he always wore. And I was like, hey, Jack, you look fantastic. Good luck. And he waved back. And honk, the third horn went off and on we went. And I noticed, geez, Karen was a fast learner. She had a nice, steady, strong stroke and I could easily follow her. Um, so I needed to practice my J strokes for going to the right and my sweep strokes for going to the left. But I stayed on course all the way to Round Island, easily got around that dock. Then on the backside, like, Karen, how are you doing? And she said, this is great, Julia. This is so much fun. I'm having a great time. And look, there's a cormorant up ahead on that buoy. I said, yeah, and then keep looking. You see that red buoy? We need to go around that and around the island another time. She goes, around the island another time? I go, yeah, that's the course. Just follow all the boats. So off we went around the island a second time. And now we're coming down the home stretch to the finish line. We had a headwind, so we had to paddle harder. But then I noticed we also had a current hitting the port side of the boat, pushing us to the right. I'm like, ah, so I'm doing these big sweep strokes, correcting our course so we're straight to the finish line. And I see Charles Lassen officiating. He's standing on a dock that's floating to the right of the finish line. He's got his air horn ready to announce the completion of the final race. And I realized we are the completion of the final. We're in last place. How did this happen? Oh my God. But okay, Julia, cool it. You're having fun. That's why you're here, right? Ah, so I'm, you know, still paddling really hard. And then, oh no, there's a big white buoy. It's 20 feet on the starboard side on collision course with my paddle. No, this can't be. So I paddle harder. 10 feet, still a collision course. Oh no, what am I gonna do? I'm speechless. I'm scared. Quickly, I switch my paddle to the other side of the canoe, right behind Karen and take a power stroke. And the canoe starts tilting. Water splashes over the port gunnel. 
I reach for the starboard. My fanny slips across the seat and splash, we turtle over right across the finish line. The water is so cold. It's the kind that takes your breath away. Like, Karen, how are you? She's clutching the canoe in one hand and she had new Ray-Bans in the other that she's clutching. Precious Ray-Bans. She goes, I'm okay, but what happened? Like, Karen, we got to stay with the boat. That's the rules. We got to stay with the boat. But I'm so cold. I'm pretty skinny. So I'm really cold. And I notice the rescue boat has turned around. It's coming toward us. It's about 100 feet away. I'm thinking, if I just swim, I'm a strong swimmer, I'll get warmed up. But Karen, I have no idea. Is she a strong swimmer? I said, Karen, stay with the boat. I'm going to swim, but stay with the boat. So I swim over get to the ladder, start going up, and three big warm hands grab me, hoist me in the boat. I say, you know, it's a great day for a swim, but only if you're a penguin. And then they give me a towel, big towel, it falls down to my shaky knees, and we go and we scoop up Karen and go right to the picnic for the festivities. Ah, those lobster rolls, they tasted so good, so good that we had second helpings of everything to try to warm up, and then we went and stood in the warm sun and the warm grass and Charles Lassen is giving out the awards and our hair is like still plastered to our heads from the salt water and we're clothes are still dripping wet and we're still clutching our towels and then Maggie Hassan approaches and I'm like wow she looks terrific she's got this powder blue suit on her blonde hair is perfectly coiffed sparkling in the sun and she takes the mic and says and now for the last award of today is the Good Sportsmanship Award. And it goes to Karen and Julia for being good sports when they capsized at the finish line. Karen and I look at each other in amazement. The crowd laughs and starts applauding. And then we gingerly step forward and shake Governor Hassan's hand and get a silver platter for our efforts. About a week later, I get a photo in the email. And it's the moment when Karen and I are capsizing. And I show it to Mike and I say, Mike, do you think he could paddle in the stern next year? Maybe we get a different award. Uh, that was great, Julia. I've, I've heard about that race and I've never attended. And now I feel like I have because um, that's something that was kind of on my bucket list. I always heard about it after the fact, and you did such a good job describing the whole thing that I felt like uh, I was right there with you. Plus, I love that the whole physical um, paddling. We we watched you actually be in that boat and uh, move toward that buoy. <laughs> well done. I'm glad the Ray Bans got saved. I would have been worried if they dropped. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Julia. That was terrific. And now. For our final story, we're going to have Steve Varnum tell us something. He lives in uh, Concord, New Hampshire, is a storyteller by nature and by profession. This will be his third appearance on True Tales Live. He was a journalist for 25 years before working for nonprofits and helping them to craft and tell stories about their impact. Steve has conducted storytelling trainings for national groups and is quite comfortable speaking in public, as you'll see. But even as a lifelong music lover, he never sang in public before until, well, let's hear more in his story, Dad Voice. Come on up, Steve. Thank you. 
So closer to the beginning, I'm 12 years old and sitting on my bedroom floor, squinched between my bed and my brother's. Beside me is a reel-to-reel tape recorder whose plastic, tinny plastic microphone I've propped up on the nightstand in front of a transistor radio. We're tuned into WORC in Worcester, Massachusetts, which may or may not have been the first radio station in the U.S. to broadcast a Beatles record. But WORC was all rock music all the time, and I'd sit for hours waiting to record my favorite songs so I could sing along with them, rewind, sing again, rewind. They say you never forget your first love. And along with baseball, music was mine. And even now, nearly 60 years since I plopped on that floor, I spend most vacations and nearly all my disposable income on music and musical experiences. I'm one of those people who wakes up every day with a song in my head. I listen to music in my car and while I'm working and the time most people spend it at home with the TV on, I have music on. And I still love to sing. I sing all the time at home. And if you pull up next to my car on the highway or at a red light, you'll see something that looks like a muffin. Bouncing and bellowing whatever song Spotify or my iPod is pumping out. But in my first 65 years, I never, ever, ever sang in public. The reason? Abject terror. That and the singing voice that always sounded to me like the strangled final yelps of a dying coyote. I've described it to people as a dad voice, as in, dad, really? Dad, come on, we're almost there. Dad, take it outside. Or my favorite, the death stare. Dad. The thing is, I don't even blame my kids. I sympathize. I've had to listen to me my whole life. So seven winters ago, I was in St. John's, Newfoundland, visiting my youngest son, Finn, who went to college there. St. John's is a port city about the size of Manchester, but with a tremendous music scene. That's partly because of its infamous George Street, where sailors, ship crews, Tourists and college kids prowl a row of bars like packs of hungry, horny wolves. It's also because generations of immigrants from Ireland and Scotland arrived with their fiddles and accordions and played and stomped on kitchen floors with neighbors under oil-lit lamps into the wee hours. In fact, it was a music festival that first lured Finn and me to St. John's years earlier. And music is what we do when we're together there. One of my favorite joints in St. John's is the Black Sheep Pub. And on this particular trip, it was advertising a Tom Waits open mic session on Sunday night. They had a house band and invited anyone who wanted to sing any Tom Waits song to come on in and sing. Now, I love Tom Waits. I love Tom Waits. He's the writer I've always wished I could be. His songs are filled with great characters and scenes so descriptive that they play like a movie in the back of your eyes. Tom was a kind of a piano crooner, I guess, in his early days. But for a long time now, he sounds like he gargles with lit cigarettes. I don't even care. 
He's one of my favorite car sing-along artists, especially his song, Mr. Siegel. You've never heard of Mr. Siegel, but it's a shouter and a growler and has everything that makes a song great. A Mexican brothel across the street from a Catholic church, casual gunplay, male prostitution, Las Vegas, and chasing dangerous curves across dirty sheets. Lyrics don't get any better than that. But if that wasn't enough perfection, Mr. Siegel also poses some deep philosophical, even existential questions like, why are the wicked so strong? Try reading tomorrow's news without thinking that now. And this one, how do angels get to sleep when the devil leaves the porch light on? I think about that a lot. I, I bet you do too. So when I saw the Black Sheep's ad, an unexpected and terrorizing thought took over my brain. I bet I can sing like Tom Waits. Then I thought, I'm 65 years old. If not now, when would I ever have a chance to sing my favorite song in front of a real band? And then I thought, no one in the room will even know who I am. When they laugh about my strangled coyote voice, it'll be, remember that guy? So I got determined to sing Mr. Siegel at the Black Sheep. And Finn, who never, ever misses a chance to see his dad make a fool of himself, said he'd come with me. All week, for a full week, while Finn was at classes and theater rehearsals, I sang alone. I practiced the growl, the odd pauses, the words Tom slurred, and the phrases he leaned into. As Saturday, as, as Sunday approached, I, I was a very weird kind of nervous, like how I imagine people feel when they're about to do something that could lead to their death. And then it was Sunday. And as soon as we opened the door of the pub, I realized that I really had made a huge mistake. The house band consisted of one of St. John's hottest players and songwriters, and a bass player I recognized from music festivals and CD covers. My brain screamed, run, run! No way was I going to embarrass myself in front of those guys. But... I couldn't do that. The previous spring, Finn had come out to myself and his mom as transgender. And a month later, he and I had traveled to London and Ireland and spent a lot of time drinking tea or Guinness and just talking, talking, asking each other questions, strategizing on how to handle family members we thought might not be receptive. Uh, you know, just sharing how we were both feeling and kind of settling into this new father-son relationship. We talked a lot, a, a lot about fear, about how you can't let it put borders around your life and when to push through it because you never, ever can know what you might find on the other side. So... If I gave in to my fear of embarrassing myself at the black sheep, I was a crappy, hypocritical, can't walk the talk father. And uh, did I mention the bar was packed? Yeah, full huts. So we snagged the last two seats against the wall in the far corner. 
I knocked back a whiskey and at the first break approached the band asking if I could sing Mr. Siegel. Is it okay if I totally suck? I asked. Oh yeah, that's what we're here for, the guitarist said. Okay then. Nearly all the singers were good. Some were obviously regulars. I felt sick and wished I hadn't done this, but you know, that dad thing. I was called up to the spotlights about halfway through the second set. I printed the lyrics because I knew I'd forget the words as soon as I was up there. The guitarist showed me very kindly how to sing into a microphone, which I'd never done. I was shaking. I'm sure everyone could see I was shaking. The song started and I came in late, then sang as hard as I could, bending way over so I couldn't see any faces. Then it was done. I stood up and the audience cheered. It sounded actually louder than it should have sounded. I put my head down, still avoiding eye contact, and made my way back to our seats. I was still sitting there shaking when Finn's plumber stopped by to say hi. And he asked me if I sang in a band. <laughs> I told him, no, man, I never sang in anything ever. And he said, well, you sure nailed it. So now Finn and I were fading. So we left at the next break. And as we passed the band on the way out, one of the guys said, you're not going to do another one? Wow. Much later, I asked Finn about the odd look on his face after I'd returned to the table. And his eyes got really wide. I didn't know you could sing like that, he said. So I don't know if there's a universal moral to this story, but I definitely learned something from the experience. And I'll borrow the words of another favorite songwriter, Jason Isbell. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. Ah, thanks, Steve. <laughs> great, great ending move there. Do it anyway. I could see you looking at the floor when you're singing, and I could see you as Tom waits because it seems to me he he like pulls his hat down and he'll just sing you know he doesn't look at his audience and sing out to them and um that whole growly voice i'm sure you you did it justice yeah that um that was that was great it, that story really had stakes too you know it kept us like oh oh what's gonna happen we were nervous for you and um it it um uh, it was a great there's a musical background with tom waits just singing right along with that story. He has, he's one of my favorites too. Yeah, and the, his lyrics, beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, well done, everybody. That, those were some terrific stories. And now we're gonna have a little bit of time for um, a Q&A. We're gonna show some photos, I think. Amy's getting some photos ready. And if you have something you'd like to ask any of the storytellers, you can put it in the chat. We'll hopefully have a little bit of time for that before we move on to, um, the interview with, with Julia. Okay, Amy, you're up next. Actually, the interview is, Steve, is with Steve. Don't panic, Julia. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> it's okay, I just imagined it might have thrown her off. Um, yes, um, well, go ahead, folks. Use the chat for questions. Um, yeah, and that was mine too. And I'm gonna also throw in the, um, 
some pictures. Let's see how that, oh, okay, yeah, you gotta just, you know how the screen share thing is. All right, so let's put in a picture for Steve, that Steve sent us. And Steve, tell us, have you sung in public again? Um, actually, I have. Uh, I sing pretty regularly with a, an informal monthly jam here in Concord. Uh, and very recently, one of the one of the guys who plays in that jam, uh, who has a band, invited me to come up and sing, uh, sing one song by myself and sing. Uh, harmony vocals with their regular singer. So yeah. That's awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. And tell us what we're looking at. So that is the view from the back of the room at the Black Sheep Pub uh, toward the front. The stage is right in front of the windows that you see behind. It is a really a stage. It's a floor with uh, spotlights. And uh, that's it. It's a, it's a, the room is is that small and goes in a little L shape around the corner. There you this go. That, that another one? Yep, so that's what it would look like if you were sitting right up close on the band. Nice, thanks. Cool, I'm really, that's a great answer, exactly the answer that I wanted. Um, <laughs> let's see, and Julia, I have a few pictures from you. Let me pull those together. Um, starting with the one that you, uh, hold on, it's, oh, here we go, good. Um, you mentioned the photo that they, they sent you after, I guess? Yeah, yeah. So, so tell, narrate that. So you can see Charles Lassen is standing there with an air horn on the dock, ready to announce the finish of the race, the third race and last race. And then I'm in the stern and Karen's in the bow. And I just switched the paddle to her side, which I'm not really supposed to paddle that way, but I wanted to get away from that darn buoy. And you can see how the water is just reaching right up to that port side gunnel. And we're both at the same time reaching for the starboard. And, yeah. And it was, it was too late. <laughs> we went over right then. So what a fantastic photo. I don't know who took it, actually. I just. Yeah, that's amazing. So glad you had that to share with us. And here is, uh, I believe that is the darn buoy. That, no, that actually is Round Island. We had to go around oh. that twice. And that's the house that Charles Lassen lived in. And then you can see the dock to the right where he kept his launch boat to commute back and forth to Portsmouth. On the far side of the island that we can't see is where that was the home stretch. And the buoy was, oh, I don't know, 30 feet before the finish line. Yeah, but it was a big white one like that. Yeah. Very nice. And my question for you here is, um, did you enter again next the next year or another year? And did you win a different award? So I did it twice. I did it once in a kayak. And it was a fishing kayak with a flat bottom. So that was very slow. <laughs> I came in last when I did that. And then Mike had shoulder surgery. So he was never able to paddle with me. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. But 
but it's a, and it also got taken over. The Gundalo company now runs it because Charles Lassen has passed away. Oh. So, and they have a much bigger um, event as a result. And it's a major fundraiser for them. So I encourage you all to check it out if you want to. It's pretty fun. Nice. Um, and I have been informed that uh, Pat was right. I am wrong. Julia is the interviewee tonight. Is right. that right? That's, that's okay. what I told, but I'll do whatever you want. So. Okay. Yeah, no, I just uh, was mis mis uh, misunderstood. Anyway, well, thanks. Um, looking here for more, more questions. And we'll get some more. Pictures, I brought a couple to show. I figured maybe some of you might want to meet Minnie. Would you like to meet Minnie? Yes. Okay, good. Um, oh, wait, let me just see. What am I missing? Okay. Let me do this one. And there's my cat here in the background. But there's John and Minnie. Uh, around the time that we were talking about, actually. She was a rescue. Um, yeah, they rescued, they brought her in. And there she is after when things were going less well for my dad and he needed assisted living, I brought her up here to try to live with us, uh, which did not work out very well but uh there she is isn't she pretty i've got another question here for steve do you play any instruments in addition to singing well matt no <laughs> matt who left that question knows the answer to this because he's one of my frequent and favorite jam partners uh, i play all kinds of percussion instruments uh lately though I got a real treasure, a real vintage instrument. It's a it was a fifteen dollar washboard I got from a uh, from an antique store because a lot of the people we've been playing with like old timey mountain music, and I usually play percussion, but you don't hear tambourines and you know congas and stuff in that kind of music. So uh, so yeah, so I got a washboard so I can fit right in. It's a lot of fun. Very nice. That sounds wonderful. And uh, yeah, we had a story about the leftist marching band a, a month or two ago, and now we've got some more. We have a musical theme going on. That's a lot of fun. <laughs> have you ever played with them, Steve? I haven't, but I've seen them play. Yeah. And they're, they're a lot of fun. I, I love it any time they show up anywhere I am. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> How do you tune a washboard, Steve? <laughs> With soap and water. And let's see, Steve, how far do we have to travel to see and hear you sing and play? So tell us where to go go experience your music. Uh, go to YouTube and uh, look up, I think it's the Danny, Danny Savage Band, and you'll find six or seven uh, videos from a show in Concord. That's the one I alluded to earlier. And uh, I'm actually there singing Dead Flowers, the Rolling Stones song. 
And you do ha have, you play in Concord, is that right? Well, this, this time, I, I mean, I don't have a band or anything, but I was playing with my friend's band in Concord. Got it. All right. Um, any last quick questions from anyone? No. All right. So I'm going to move us along here to wrapping things up. Um, and I actually want to start it with a few more words about John. And I'm going to drop something in the chat for those of you. There is a history that I think John wrote um, on our website if you want some more details. And if anyone wants to write anything in the chat, you can. But let me say a few words myself um, as we're wrapping up. I just, I do want to take a few minutes to honor John, True Tales Live's founder back in November, um, well, 2013, the first show being November, and our producer for all these years. Um, and by the way, in this case, the title of producer comes with a very long list of jobs in a wide variety of categories. <laughs> um, when John wrote down for us the, you know, to document what jobs he does for the show, we weren't surprised, but I got to say it was daunting to even read through it. <laughs> um, so I remember back in the fall of 2013, when John brought the idea up to me of a moth-like storytelling show here in the seacoast. And I immediately thought, yes, this is brilliant. And I volunteered to help. And many others have had the same, you know, enthusiasm for it since then. We're really proud to have created this, this space where People can share important moments from their lives. It gives us a great way to connect and learn from each other. And in a period of time, the past 10 years, when uh, division and breaking apart stands out often, we're just really glad to have helped make a space where people can come together in a, a real and a, an authentic way to share. And John, none of it would have happened without you. So let's do that clapping thing for John again. So um, now let me say some more, some more, uh, uh, you know, mundane things, shall we say. More thanks, first of all. Thanks to all of you, to, and thanks to everyone for being with us tonight, especially our tellers and our live audience. Um, we are soon to move to our after story conversation segment, but first I just want to share a, a little information for you. The, starting with announcing again that for the first time in a few years true tales live will offer a live show it will be friday june 30th at 6 30 p.m at the portsmouth senior center and we're calling it true tales live in real life ttl irl right yeah um the program will feature six tellers the tickets um are $15 with more if you can ask for. Cash or check only at the door. We do hope that the show will be a fundraiser for us as we, we haven't been able to pass the hat in a long time. Um, and because there are costs associated with putting it on, we could also, if anyone you know is able to contribute now and more, 
we would really appreciate it. And you can do so at truetaleslivenh.org. Just go there and click on the donate button. After that, True Tales Live takes the summer off with no shows in July or August. We'll pick back up in September. You can go to truetaleslivenh.org for our fall lineup. We encourage you to attend one of our monthly Zoom workshops, usually on the first Tuesday from 7 to 8.30. The next one is next week, Tuesday, June 6th. Then we'll take July and August off and be back on September 5 for the for our workshop again on Zoom. You can contact us about it, info at truetaleslivenh.org. Um, and you can also go again, truetaleslivenh.org for the links to register for the workshops. Watch us on Portsmouth Public Media TV, Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturday, Saturdays at 1 p.m. and anytime as video on demand or a podcast. TrueTalesLiveNH.org makes it easy to access all these things. Let's do more thank yous for those who make this show possible. Once again, John Lovering and Pat Spaulding, David Frainer, Sarah Bedingfield, Kamisha Foley, Tina Charpentier, and I'm Amy Antonucci. And before we move to the backstory interview, with, by David Frainer, please join us for our online tradition. It's a minute of movement to shake off the Zoom cobwebs here. Um, it's our True Tales Live dance party. We have a great time with it. We hope you'll join us with your video on, even if you're just gonna move a little. That's fine. Some of us are gonna stand up and really party though. So you can join us. You might wanna have it on gallery so you can see everyone. And I'm gonna turn it over to John here to get it going.